Hello, my name is Father Gregory Pine, and I'm a Dominican friar of the province of St. Joseph and an assistant director at the Domestic Institute, and delighted to be with you for this most recent installment of Off-Campus Conversations, where we try to follow up with a Thomistic Institute speaker and uh, kind of chase down some of the insights from a lecture, whether on campus or in the setting of a conference or a retreat. So for this installment, very delighted to be joined by Professor John Butachi. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. Happy to be here. That's great. So folks will know you from other lectures that you've given for the Thomistic Institute, things that have appeared on the podcast. And um, for those who don't, would you just say a word of introduction, you know, who you are, where you're from, what you do? Sure. Um, I'm an assistant professor at Catholic University. I teach philosophy. Uh, my research focuses mainly in ancient philosophy. Um, some of my work uh, focuses on ancient theories of science and in particular ancient uh, understanding of life and the soul. Um, so... Um, that's where I did my graduate work uh, at the University of Pittsburgh, um, trying to look at Aristotle in particular, but also more widely ways that ancient thinkers approach these scientific questions. Okay. Um, with whom did you study at the University oh, of Pittsburgh? So I, I studied with um, John McDowell and, and Jim Lennox. Um, Jim, Jim Lennox is um, known for his work in Aristotle, in particular Aristotle's biology, but also his work in Darwin. And so it's, uh, he's one of these rare figures uh, who is able to have expertise in two different fields. And so he's able to see more. So I was really happy to study with him, um, especially in connection with some of the questions we'll be talking about today. That's awesome. Yeah, I, um, I don't know the philosophical world well at all, but I'm good friends with Father Bonaventure Chapman, your colleague, um, who has great esteem for many philosophers at University of you know, Pittsburgh and the way he describes it, it's like, you know, one of these last places where there's a kind of coherent school or maybe schools, depending on whether you do more ancient medieval things or more modern contemporary things. So, yeah, I was really happy to be there. And one of my colleagues here in the School of Philosophy at Catholic U was also uh, in the program with me. Uh, so, so the School of Philosophy at CUA now has two Pitt grads and Father Bonaventure, I think, will be joining us, too. So we have a lot of Pitt fanboys here in the, in the school of philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Actually, a apropos of the School of Philosophy at Catholic University, um, I, I guess I take it for granted that it has a sterling reputation, that it's a powerhouse of instruction and of research, uh, but I, I don't know how widely that's known. So I try to, you know, plug the Catholic University of America at every opportunity, but would you just say a word about, uh, say a word about your school? Sure. Um, we're, the country's only Catholic school of philosophy. We're our own school, and we are an ecclesiastical school, which means that we confer not only civil degrees like a bachelor's of arts or something, but we also confer ecclesiastical degrees, which are uh, conferred by in the name of the church. Um, so we have a number of uh, priests and religious or, or seminarians that come through our program pursuing these ecclesiastical degrees, um, but we also have lay students that are committed to a Catholic intellectual worldview. And uh, so that's the distinctive flavor of our school um, in terms of kind of institutional commitment. Uh, we're uh, authorized to teach philosophy in the name of the church. Um, but it's a weird thing to teach philosophy in the name of the church because philosophy's not supposed to rely upon the, the revealed truths or revealed uh, deposit. And so, um, it's, it's interesting to engage in a philosophical inquiry with colleagues and with students from a shared set of commitments without 
appealing to those commitments in the in the philosophical arguments we're, we're pursuing. Um, I would say that a distinctive part of what we do um, in the way that we pursue that work is through the history of philosophy. Um, so one of the hallmarks of, of the School of Philosophy is uh, its dedication and its focus on the history of philosophy. And not just medieval philosophy, though that is one of our strong suits. We also have um, scholars of Kant and, and German idealism. Um, and, and ancient scholars of Plato and Aristotle. And uh, so there's a, there's a broad range of expertise in the history of philosophy. And I would say that when it comes to scholarship, uh, that's what defines um, the mission of our school. Boom, yeah. And, and there's something that I guess I have observed, I don't know, in living across the street from Catholic University for some time is that there's a kind of like cross-generational coherence to it as well. Um, you know, like you have various ways of coming together as colleagues, which communicates a common vision of philosophy and its, you know, its pursuits. Uh, and you're able to transmit that, it seems to from generation to generation. So they're, you know, a kind of estimable old guard, you know, with fathers Sokolowski and Whipple. Um, and there's, you know, kind of like young scholars who have been hired in the last three to five years, but there's a common life, it seems, and a, and a kind of common vision, which is edifying. Yeah. And it's, and it's rare. I mean, the fact that um, well, I'm lucky because I, they like to say that the school of philosophy, um, the, the lingua franca of the school of philosophy is Aristotle, that everybody's got some broad familiarity with Aristotle. Even those who don't work principally on Aristotle, they can trade in Aristotelian um, terms and concepts. And so I'm lucky because my research is in the area which is core to that shared vision um, and shared language. Um, but that doesn't mean everybody's an Aristotelian. It just means that there's a kind of common vision. And I think Father Whipple and Father Sogolowski were a big part of that, um, uh, that vision. Uh, you know, every, every place has its own distinctive flavor and distinctive, uh, distinctive language and culture, but not, not every place has the kind of coherence that, that we have. And so it's, it's a really fine thing and a really special thing uh, that we have here at the School of Philosophy. Um, and, you know, we're always looking for students that are, you know, wanting to study engineering or business or whatever, uh, you know, to go on to their career, but then to tack on a philosophy as second major or minor, we're always eager to, to have students that come to Catholic University or consider Catholic University to, you know, take advantage of, of what we have here, because I think it's really special. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, okay, well then with that, uh, let's turn to the subject matter of a lecture that you gave at Indiana University in Bloomington, um, and specifically one about the soul. So touching on the heart of your doctoral kind of research project and also subsequent, you know, publication efforts. Um, but, you know, something that's pitched to, to undergraduates. So as a, a kind of bridge building exercise, helping those who are maybe at a distance from or, or you know, feel like kind of alien to this type of philosophical paradigm as a, as a welcome or as a kind of invitation, I suppose. Um, and it seems like part, part of that is the tacit acknowledgement. Well, you stated it. So the acknowledgement that, um, that we think otherwise, um, you know, not to, not to make a judgment as to whether it's better or worse, but certainly different. Um, and we might say worse, uh, you know, that in the 21st century, we're just downstream of a lot of philosophical and scientific movements, which um, inform our worldview and our approach to reality, which would, would not have made sense to Aristotle or would not have um, jived, I suppose, with the approach that he commended and practiced. Um, so, yeah, maybe, maybe we can just kind of start there with a, 
a scientistic worldview? What are some obstacles or hindrances which keep, which keep us from engaging with reality as kind of reality presents itself? What are the types of preconceptions which we might bring to the table? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things you said early on there was, you know, we're encountering it. Part of the purpose of my talk, which was uh, why would a biologist believe in the soul, is to invite people to glimpse an alternative uh, we all think we know what we mean when somebody says they believe in the soul, or we think we know what we're talking about when they say the word soul. And um, something that I've become worried about is that even people that take themselves to be good Catholics or good students of St. Thomas Aquinas, they're actually deploying a concept of soul that isn't St. Thomas's. Um, and, and so um, what would that be? Well, that would be a concept of soul that is exclusively human, a concept of soul that is that is uh, somehow apart from and separate from our biological life as as animals. We're a very distinctive kind of animal, um, but oftentimes when people think about the soul today, even people that are favorable and you know they they want to talk about the soul, they're happy to talk about the soul. Um, they they regard it as this sort of ethereal thing. It's kind of over here, I don't know, uh, floating above the body or somehow in the special part of the body. And I think that that's a tempting view for a number of reasons, but it's not Thomas's view. Um, and, it, and it certainly wasn't Aristotle's view. And so part of what I was trying to do in the talk is to invite those that want to understand St. Thomas a little better into a worldview or a, a concept of the soul that is a principle of life as such. And so one of the advantages to that way of thinking about life is that um, there's no gap between the intellectual operations of a human being and of, of a human soul and the more animal operations, more organic, we might say, operations of, of the body. And so there's a kind of continuity between having a thought that um, provokes anger and then having some, something happen to my heart where my heart rate goes up. Right. Um, but if you think of the soul as something that's uh, distinctively human and is, is then you're going to have a different conception of what's going on with the heart or what's going on with the bodily organs. And, and so I, the, the way the talk is presented is not as a positive argument in favor of this alternative worldview. It's simply a sketching of that alternative worldview because I think it, we've become so lost to it or it's become so lost to us um, that even those who are trying to pursue a, a, a view of uh, reading, a faithful reading of St. Thomas, don't realize that they're deploying an um, alien notion of soul in doing so. So that's one kind of purpose and and the, the obstacle for that audience of the of the talk or that purpose of the talk is that we're we're deploying a concept of soul that we don't realize isn't isn't thomas's or isn't uh the sort of thing that thomas would have endorsed so there's a kind of implicit or hidden obstacle right we're blind to our own assumptions but there's another group of people that i think are interested in this kind of talk and that's those who are engaged in biological inquiry and they might have found themselves um, dissatisfied with some of the ways that biological inquiry is, is pursued in certain schools or certain labs. And that's a, that's a view that zeroes in on a really narrow uh, organic process or really narrow organic part 
maybe even a, a, a single hormone or a single enzyme or a single um, protein. And they'll do really important work and they'll discover really interesting things about that, that tiny little aspect of our, of our animal life. Uh, this usually happens in medicine, but also biologists more generally will do this research in animals other than human beings. Um, and then they won't ask the next question, which is, how does that fit in with this other organic process that this other team of researchers are doing over here? And I, I think a really interesting example of this kind of growing awareness that this, this kind of hyper-specialization in biological research um, and um, which is necessary in certain ways to get to get at the truth of things, uh, but it requires there to be some kind of comprehensive view. There's got to be somebody whose job it is to to look at, you know, what the endocrinologists are doing and what the nephrologists are doing, and and, and look at each of these, um, you know, clusters of medical journals, for example, and to ask, well, what if that study has something to do with this phenomenon over here? And a really interesting case study where this is happening is in genetics. And that's where we, we thought for a long time that, that when we discovered DNA, that it was a simple blueprint, that it was a straightforward blueprint, that you either had a gene or you didn't. And uh, the, the mere presence of a gene in the, in the genetic code would determine something, that it would be a straightforward, if it's present, then you have this um, expression. And in the, in the last 20 years or so, the genetics research has changed into a more holistic understanding because we're realizing that gene expression is what's really matters. It's not whether the gene is present, but whether the gene gets turned on, if you like. And the factors that go into genes being expressed or genes being activated um, could be environmental factors, they can be behavioral factors, they can be all kind of chemical factors, right? Certain presence of certain presence or absence of certain nutrients. So um, what they're realizing in genetics research is that they need a more holistic understanding of the whole organism, and that their research into what the genetic code does requires that they kind of zoom out and look at the whole organism and look at environmental factors behavior. So in other words, there's a growing awareness in that field of biology at any rate um, that, that you can't have that hyper-focus only, that you need to have the hyper-focus and then you have to have somebody whose job it is to zoom out and integrate. Um, another place where this is, is happening in, in the medical field is in um, gastrointestinal studies where the microbiome, where they we're actually realizing that uh, bacteria and even fungi are really important to the proper functioning of our, of our gastrointestinal system, our uh, GI tract. And, and they don't, this is where the cutting edge of research is, is, well, how do you, you know, what, what would probiotics do? What probiotics ought to be given? Or um, how, do we, how do we heal certain um, disturbances to the microbiome? Um, and so there's, the, in other words, it's not enough to just look in a kind of laser beam way at the way that this one organ is working or this one enzyme is working and breaking something down, but there's actually a more holistic, if you like, ecology to, to what's going on in the GI tract. So these are two really interesting cases where biologists themselves are realizing that this hyper-focus, hyper-specialization, while necessary, is insufficient. And, and the people that regarded it as, as sufficient, that's a kind of obstacle to a 
proper understanding of a, of a living organism. Um, so that's a kind of second audience for my talk. It says, well, maybe if we glimpse how other biologists in a different era thought about living things, maybe they'll give us the conceptual resources to understand better what modern biologists are reaching for, where the kind of realizations we're coming to. Um, okay, then maybe, maybe to proceed along the lines of uh, a kind of Aristotelian philosophical anthropology, I think one of the obstacles that people encounter when they are presented with this type of approach is they make the assumption that it's um, a faith claim that, you know, you're positing into the void some, you know, disembodied spirit and conjoining that to the very obvious biological apparatus. And you're doing that because what you're afraid of going to hell or whatever it right. is, you know, so people have the reasons. But I think that, you know, when you follow Aristotle, the approach, you, you might call it inductive, you might call it experiential, you might call it any number of things according to a modern kind of scientific paradigm. But how does, how does Aristotle reason to the existence of the soul? Is it preconceived? Is it preassumed? Yeah. Or is there a process of discovery? No, that's a great, that's a great question. Um, you use the word induction, I think, or em empiricism. And, and this, is, uh, this is one of those things that the you know the pit school philosophy that we were talking about at the beginning has a lot to say about these these two words are um dangerous words so i'll just say um <laughs> depending on what one means by inductivism or empiricism um i think i think it's right to attribute that to aristotle i mean empiricism that comes from the Greek word for experience emperia and aristotle certainly emphasizes the need for experience and, and so just to say a word about, about that, Aristotle criticizes the biologists who sort of reason their way from, from the clouds, and then they come down and say, so this is why that bird has that color feather. So they like start with the stars and then reason down in a really strange way. Sometimes those arguments are mathematical, and they, they seem really unfamiliar to us, um, but, but Aristotle will like go watch the bird and watch its life cycle and watch how it interacts with others of its same species and others of different species, um, how it interacts with the trees and so on. So in that respect, Aristotle is, is his, his approach to biology, his approach to the study of life is, is empirical. Um, and he famously says that he doesn't understand how bees reproduce. He's puzzled by the reproduction of bee because he doesn't understand how um, one of the bees becomes selected as the king bee. And of course, for him, he calls it the king bee, but uh, we know it's, it's female. Um, so he says, but, but since we have no data, we should withhold judgment and maybe somebody will come along with more data. So just as a first principle, Aristotle's approach is, is informed by the the phenomena, the appearances, the, the facts on the ground, if you like. So how does that influence his view of the soul? Well, that's interesting. I think what he does is he goes out in the world and he looks at the way things operate and he sees a network of living things. He's got a very ecological view of how things work together, symbiotic relationships and things like this. He's very aware of. And when he watches the life cycle of things, he notices there's a unity of the changes, uh, both the changes and activities that something experiences, like like a, a tree um, 
um, suffering the, 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 the force of the wind or what have you and how it might have ways, certain trees might have ways to retain its leaves in the face of the wind in certain seasons and to shed its leaves in the face of the wind in other seasons. Uh, but then he also has, he's very interested in the ways that things change and under its own power, change in a more active way. Like when uh, a, a dog goes out and um, attacks a squirrel, right? Moves from here to there and gets really uh, agitated and really active. And when he's watching all of these life activities on this range of activity and passivity, I think he's saying there's a unity there. There's, there's, um, there's something... There's one identity, there's one thing there that is doing and suffering all these things. And so I think he's just committed to saying that there's got to be a principle which is doing the unifying of that thing's activities. And I think that that's a principle of his just basic worldview, right? He believes that not just about living things, but about everything in nature, that every natural thing, every natural substance has a has a internal principle of um, motion and rest, of change, in other words. And so because he has that commitment, that worldview, when he goes out and looks at the world and he's faced with all this phenomena and, and all, this, um, all these different appearances and different um, data points, he, he wants to see those living things as unified and as um, uh, somehow different from things that aren't unified, right? Uh, and so soul is just the word he gives to that, that unifying principle. Now, how is that going to be different from, from, from modern biologists? Well, I, I, frankly, I don't, I don't know. Um, uh, some, I think some biologists are going to say, well, that's exactly what I do. And I think there's some biologists who are doing work. Uh, I mean, Jim Lennox is somebody that's, uh, that studies these these biologists and talks to them and works with them, um, some of some of whom have been his his students, um, and they're looking at ecological systems and it and it organisms in a more holistic way. And so, when an Aristotelian describes what Aristotle calls soul, they say, right. I mean, soul is kind of a weird word for that, but sure, I agree with everything Aristotle's saying there. Um, that wasn't always true, and it, it still isn't true for every biologist, but I think that there, there are some biologists that are willing to sign on to that. Now, you asked about philosophical anthropology, which is the human being side, which is a sort of another step, but, but the Aristotelian, I think, starts with a certain worldview about how to understand nature, how to understand natural things, and, uh, and then works up from there based on what he discovers in nature. I don't know if that answers the, uh, the question. It does. Yeah, very helpfully and very illustratively. Um, maybe then, you know, the time that we have left, we could just think a little bit about the definition that Aristotle formulates. You probably have um, a better way of describing it or a more um, precise way of describing it. But this idea that the soul is the first act of an organized body having life potentially within it. I think when people hear those words or something like those words, it's like, wow, that's either really helpful or really unhelpful or really confusing or really unconfused. I know it's, I mean, it's, but, but like when you kind of drill down on each of those respective concepts or notions, I think people begin to see the appeal of this type of approach, especially on the, on the paradigm that you just described, this idea of, you know, discovery of a kind of, you know, 
inductivism or empiricism conceived Aristotelian wise. Um, but yeah, could you maybe, you know, like when, when thinking about this definition, what's the first handle that you lay hold of? How do you walk your students yeah. through the steps and kind of de not demonstrating insofar as one can? Yeah, that's a that's a tough one to do, given given what we're doing here. So usually when I teach, <laughs> I'll just say when I teach that I work through because he gives three definitions before he gets to he, that's the third. And each time he revises one of the one of the terms of the definition and makes it more precise. Um, and so uh, what I usually do is I walk through very slowly how <laughs> how he's doing that. And I will have already introduced some of these concepts in his study of nature and the definition of, of nature and the definition of motion from the physics to be able to kind of show them. Look at what he's just all he's doing is taking his account of nature and applying it to living things. And yeah. so what I would say maybe very briefly in response to your question is that all he's doing is taking his definition of, of nature, which is a internal principle of motion and rest that is belongs to it per se, that belongs to it insofar as it is what it is. Um, and that's what the soul is. The soul is the, the nature, the, the formal nature um, of a living thing. So it's not like a living thing has a nature and then has like a soul and these things are unconnected. Um, it's that soul just is what informs uh, a living thing. Whereas uh, non-living things have, have natures that are not souls. Um, so this is maybe a specific case or a, not a specific case, but a, um, a very special and interesting instance of something that Aristotle believes more generally about nature. Um, we can talk about first act. I mean, first act is, is, is as opposed to second act is like the possession of knowledge uh, rather than the use of knowledge. That's the example Aristotle gives right there at the beginning of De Anima II. And, and you might think, well, why is that helpful? Well, part of what Aristotle is trying to say is that you possess the soul all the time even, even if some of the powers or capacities or aspects of the soul are dormant, inactive, or incapable of being active, right? So the reason that's interesting, that first act, if for, for, for us, is that if, if something is a dog, it has a dog's soul. And you might say, well, this dog is blind. This dog is incapable of doing certain things that the dog could, or this dog is in a coma. Well, is it alive? Well, yes, but it's like asleep or in a coma or in a vegetative state or something. And you say, well, then it doesn't have its soul anymore. Well, Aristotle wouldn't say that. Aristotle would say, well, if it's if it is a living dog, even if many of its life activities are impeded, it still possesses the soul. So it's just like you don't forget your knowledge of, I don't know, you work in moral theology, is that correct? You know, Dogmatic theology and moral so theology. You don't, yep. you don't forget your knowledge of the virtue of prudence uh, when you go to sleep. But when you're asleep, you're impeded from thinking about the virtue of prudence. Um, and so what Aristotle is saying is just because you're impeded because you're asleep uh, from deploying that knowledge, it doesn't mean that you've lost the knowledge. So by analogy with the soul, even when a certain organism is impeded in its life activities, 
uh, it doesn't lose the principle of those life activities. It still retains it. Um, so that can be interesting. And you might wonder about how that might apply in certain bioethical cases, actually. If, if you have this more Aristotelian conception of the soul, and then you carry that over into your anthropology or the, the study of the human, uh, distinctively human, then anything that is a human being that is alive has a human soul. Even if certain life activities are impeded due to disability or, or illness, um, it, it is a living human being and so it possesses the soul, however impeded uh, its life activities are. It can't, the human being can't replace the human soul with a horse soul or a cabbage soul. It's just not possible on the Aristotelian worldview. So you can sort of glimpse how that little first act, those two small words in the definition of soul could, could explode into a really interesting alternative picture of what we mean by the human soul. Um, but I, I don't know if that's satisfying for, for what little time we have, but um. no, that's, I think I, I should probably like when, when talking to philosophers and so far as philosophers are very much committed to the discourse and very much committed to precision, I should probably preface some of my things like, okay, we're on a plane and it's going down. And the Lord just revealed to both of us that in order for us to go to heaven, you need to tell me about the soul <laughs> as the first act of an organized body having life potentially within it. Yeah. Because uh, otherwise you're like, ah, I'm like traducing the discourse. It's like, no, it's okay. You're, you got yeah. this. You I mean, know, like you know the, your, that, that little story doesn't doesn't help the philosopher because the philosopher's like, oh, crap, we're going to hell then because there's no way. <laughs> there's no way I can do this. I may as well take my time. <laughs> so. Okay, well then let's turn to this notion of a potentially or, or an organized body. Sure. Um, so I, I don't know if you find this helpful. I, I think I find this helpful. And I did some work on the sacred humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ, and it's common in the tradition to speak of it as the instrumentum divinitatis, and that's coming from John Damascene, who refers to it as basically like the organ of the Godhead in the Greek, which is like sometimes St. Thomas will use the word organ, and sometimes he'll use the word instrument. So in my own kind of reasoning through it, you know, you have words of a Greek provenance, which have a kind of twofold reception in the Latin tradition, one of which I think of as mysterion, which can be re rendered as mysterium or can be re like rendered as sacramentum, yeah. depending on the context and its use. So like when we talk about, you know, the soul acting through powers or we talk about the soul in crass language interfacing with yeah. an organized body, like what's the operative sense there? What's what are we to glean? Yeah, from that? I, so it's funny. I, I, I don't know if this is a Thomist the slogan, the organized body, but I often in, in, in my world of ancient philosophy, it'd be say organic body, but I oh, find nice. organic okay. to be totally obscure. So I like organized. Um, <laughs> what, what I, some people just translate to say instrumental body. Um, so okay. the Greek word for, for organ just means instrument. There's no there's no distinction there. Um, so a bodily organ is a tool for a certain kind of activity. Mm -hmm. So uh, we can think we can think of bodily organs in a certain way as tools, but as the tools of a living thing as opposed to the tools of an artist, right? So the tools of a carpenter, he can sort of manipulate, he can even invent new tools maybe, but the tools that we have in virtue of being a living thing those tools were stuck with, were given by nature. They're given by nature, not by art. And so sometimes the word tool is misleading because we associate it with art. 
But I think we can get this one idea from the word tool, and that's that my whole organism, my whole living being, um, needs certain instruments to accomplish certain activities that my whole organism is, is accomplishing. Or think of the dog, if you prefer to think of, a, of, of an organism that isn't human. Um, and so that, that part of the definition, and remember at that point, I don't know how much we want to get in the weeds here, but Aristotle, as soon as he gives that definition, he says some clarifying remarks. And then at, in the beginning of chapter two, he says, let's start again because we need a more particular definition. And so what he's done in that, that definition we've been kind of chewing on, that's meant to be the most abstract or most general definition. Um, and, and it actually is not informative of any particular living thing, right? It's not designed to be informative of any particular living thing. It's precisely meant to be the kind of definition that one could use in the study of plants, in the study of, of human beings, in the study of dogs, in the study of sponges, which are an interesting case in Aristotle's biology. Hell, sponges are an interesting case in, in our biology. Um, so, so what do I want to say? Um, well, this definition in appealing to an organized body is saying that whatever the life form we're talking about, oak, tree, dog, sponge, human being, whatever the life form we're talking about, there's going to be some um, body with differentiated parts in some form or another, some kind of differentiation of the parts that will be usable by the soul or by the organism um, for its distinctive form of life. Uh, so that part of the definition is very abstract, but it's meant to be multiply realizable. It's meant to be sort of applicable in all these different cases of different forms of life. But in every case of form of life, there's some kind of differentiated body that is a tool for the living. That's a tool for the life activities of the thing. So just as the, the body of Christ is a, a instrument of divinitatis or an instrument of the divinity to accomplish the goals of the incarnate word, um, so too in a far more pedestrian and natural way, the, the organized body is in each case of each different kind of living thing is meant to be a tool for life, a tool for living. And, 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 and so you'll find that what that means is that the, the matter or the body can put restrictions on what the, 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 the soul can accomplish, if you like, um, that there can be material impediments. Uh, so, um, so it might be part of my life, my form of life that, that I see, um, or that I can throw a baseball. Uh, maybe these are things that are part of my form of life. Maybe not throw a baseball, but maybe run away from a predator or climb a tree to escape a predator. But I might have certain either acquired or congenital um, disabilities in the, the material body that make it difficult or maybe even impossible for that part of the soul to be exercised or that aspect of the soul to uh, flourish in the life activity of the organism. So I think that that's, that's what's so interesting about that part of the definition is it is, it is about as specific as he can be without talking about any particular kind of living thing. It's just, it's important that every living thing in its own way have a body which is differentiated and organized so that it can live the distinctive kind of life that it, it has. Um,
Okay. Yeah, no, that's, that is helpful. And, um, it's certainly uh, helpful in bringing into focus, like the philosopher's task. Uh, and it's the way in which it's distinct perhaps from how we understand the modern biologist or contemporary bi biologist task. Okay. I have one, I have one further question, uh, as we wrap up and it's, you know, so in speaking of the body as, or, you know, the organs of the body as organs, or in speaking of the body as a kind of instrument, I think, um, you know, some people who are familiar with the Catholic conversation to whatever degree or extent they'll have in mind, St. John Paul II's use of the personalistic norm and his theology of the body, this idea that you can't treat humans as means, but as ends. And then when they hear the word instrument, they think about it as, you know, somehow negative, yeah. um, would you say like in, in this understanding, while it's, you know, somewhat foreign to the conversation, uh, the idea of instrumentality and certainly its intimacy or the sublimity of its union with the human soul, is that something denigrating or is that something dignifying or is that just to pose it in the wrong terms? Well, that's interesting. I, one thing that is important to be careful about when talking about the, the Aristotelian approach to soul and body, if you like, is that I keep saying this, the, the whole organism, I've used that phrase a few times, um, I could just as easily say the whole living body taken together. And so when you think about the whole living body taken together um, in its full flourishing, doing the activities, um, that isn't the instrument. That's the doing of the thing, right? Um, the the when you regard the body merely as a material part or some some part of the body as a material part, like the liver, for example, um, I think what, the, the, what you gain by thinking of it as an instrument is that you see that it's serving some larger, more integrated, holistic purpose. And so when we, when we use the language of instrument, that's to understand some higher purpose or higher goal of of the living thing and so when i talk about the whole organism that's the higher goal the life and flourishing of the whole organism that is the higher goal in the case of a dog or in the case of any other uh living living thing human beings are are interesting for, for a number of reasons um and i think that that's where a lot of john paul ii's remarks and in general the personalists of dietrich von hildebrand and others um that are thinking they're thinking through particular aspects of our humanity that, that make us different but, but i would say that thinking about parts or aspects of our humanity as parts that are supposed to serve an integrated humanity uh, that serve the life and flourishing of the person i think that that's wholesome i think that that's a good thing that that understanding a certain subordination of goods and desires and, and parts and aspects of human life um, that are ordered toward the life and flourishing of the whole person taken as an integrated whole and the relationships that that person engages. That's a really important part of the story uh, when it comes to humans and comes to the personalist tradition. Um, so, so thinking of parts or processes of the body as instruments of that person's life, I think can, can be helpful. It's just, we have to remember that when we're using that word instrument, the instrument is always directed towards something higher. And that something higher is precisely what the personalist wants to talk about. It's precisely that, mm -hmm. that more holistic, flourishing, relational um, life. So, so I, I take the point that th thinking about things as instruments or means, uh, means to an end, if you like, 
can sometimes make people nervous, but there's a there's an acceptable way to speak about those things so long as we have the right end in view, as long as the right our our means end relations are are ordered correctly. And I think that that's precisely what John Paul II is trying to trying to do in the theology of the body and and in other works. Great. All right. Well, I I appreciate the conversation. Sure. Thanks so much for this taking the great. time. Um, yeah. And for for folks who want to follow up on these particular themes or would like to follow up with you on on matters you know pertinent to the subject, can you direct them to any resources? Ah. Uh, you know, I I would say, hmm, it's a good question. Um, I'm a big fan of primary texts. And yeah. I think <laughs> I think if you read the Summa, which has a theological, not a philosophical frame, but if you, if you read the treatise on man, as it was called once upon a time, um, which starts at question 75 of the first part of the, the Summa, if you read that patiently, and if you read that thinking that the, the basic concept of soul that Aquinas has in mind here is that of a living thing in general, so that dogs have souls, oak trees have souls, and so on. If you come to that text with that worldview, that concept of soul, it reads very differently. If you mm. come at that text with what we usually in day-to-day -day discourse mean by soul, um, there's going to be a ton of that treatise that will be unreadable that will be utterly inscrutable. Why is he talking about brute animals? Right. So I, I, I think I would, I would encourage the brave, the brave soul to, uh, uh, try to tackle that. But with this reorientation in hand, um, and I also, I, I mean, I know that the Thomistic Institute has these reading groups, right? I don't know how open those are to, to people if they're specific to specific chapters or if they're things that people sign up for. But I find that doing this is more of a personalist point, but doing these kind of inquiries and these kind of studies in conversation with others, I think that's how we're supposed to engage in these philosophical and theological reflections is in, in conversation with others. So I think um, finding somebody to work with, work through these texts with, I think is really um, indispensable. I mean, it's a key part of how we can, can flourish as human beings. Yeah. And for me, like reading the De Anima for the first time closely and the Treatise on Man for the first time closely was with um, another you know, product of, of the Catholic University of America, Professor Brian Carl, who teaches sure. at the University of St. Thomas in Houston. And it was just like, yeah, the patience with which he read and he commented was, yeah, just an exercise in aided discovery. I mean, it was teaching as it ought to be. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, um, especially in the 21st century, when a lot of instruction is like, all right, I need to hold the intention of my audience. So now I'll like blow something up over here and draw with colorful, you know, markers over here, you know, all of which, whatever, it's in service of the, of the discourse. But just to say, like, I commend the discourse to you by the love with which I read. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I was yeah. like, hey, cheers yeah. to that. Um, Good. Okay, great. Well, thanks so much. And, and turning now to you, the Thomistic Institute listener, uh, thanks so much for having tuned into this episode of uh, Off-Campus Conversations. Um, they are due to be out every two weeks insofar as I prove myself constant 
or our editors prove themselves the same. So um, that's all we have for you. We'll look forward to chatting with you at the next opportunity. Know of our prayers for you. Please play for us, and we'll catch you next time on the Thomistic Institute podcast.